Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the Library Science channel of New Books Network. My name is Jen Hoyer, and today I'm speaking with Andrea Jamieson, author of Decentering Whiteness in Libraries, a framework for inclusive collection management practices published by Roman and Littlefield in September 2023. Decentering Whiteness in Libraries serves as a how-to guide for evaluating and crafting collection development policies that will help create equity in library collections. This book not only helps contextualize the need for inclusive collection development policies, but features user-friendly tables, guides, and sample policies. And Andrea Jamison is Assistant Professor of School Librarianship at Illinois State University. Andrea, welcome to New Books Network. Thank you invitation. <laughs> yeah, really excited to have you here. But before we start talking about this book, would you mind introducing yourself to listeners? I'd love if you could talk a little bit about where you went, you grew up and went to school and what brought you to your work in libraries. Right, absolutely. Uh, so I'm, I live in Chicago. I grew up in Chicago and I grew up, something that I talk about often is the fact that I grew up in a very impoverished community. I think that's important because my experiences as a young child is really what led me into this path to, or down this path to librarianship. And um, it's definitely due to the fact of, of my experiences within the educational system during that time. I grew up in a community where there was just not a lot of resources for the students that were present or the children that were present in my community. And so because of that, I became interested in education because I wanted to, I became a teacher, but uh, I wanted to make sure that the students that I worked with had opportunities that I did not have when I was a student. One of the things I talk about in my book, because I do give a little brief intro into my history um, growing up and why it's important for 
uh, schools and librarians to think about diversity, um, especially in terms of the impact that they're making, the opportunities that they have to make an impact on the lives of uh, children from all over the world. Uh, but I was an avid reader and being an avid reader in school, I was put into this, what was considered to be a gifted program. And, and I have some issues with that. Um, but throughout my childhood, being a reader, being in a community where there was a lack of resources, I don't ever recall having the opportunity to go to a library and to check out books, specifically check out books that were representative of my um, identity being an African-American female. And so uh, I wanted to change that for for children when I became older. So I knew I wanted to become a teacher. And ironically, I started off working as a self-contained classroom teacher, teaching fourth grade, fifth grade. I loved it. But I worked in a community that was really like the community in which I grew up in. And I remember going to the school library as a teacher with my students and that library being very reminiscent of the library that I experienced almost 25 years earlier. And I felt like I was just, you know, I felt like libraries were stuck in this kind of time war. Um, I didn't know it then that, you know, it could have possibly been the community that I was in um, or communities that represent marginalized uh, youth, but that bothered me. And, and so it led me down this path of wanting to make a difference because I wanted youth, uh, particularly the students that I work with, to have access to books um, that, as Rudine Sims Bishop would say, serve as windows, mirrors, and sliding glass doors. So long story short, <laughs> I became, um, I had a principal say to me one day, I think you should work in a library. Um, and I went into a library program at Dominican University for my master's and later went back to Dominican for my PhD. And that's how I got here. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing all of that. Uh, so shifting to this new book, Decentering Whiteness in Libraries, could you talk a little bit about how this book came to be and what some of your hopes and goals were for this project? Yeah, so this book morphed out of my research. So my research while I was at Dominican University working on my PhD involved, um, it just really started off with the question, really, like, why aren't there diverse books on library shelves? And why don't students have access to these books? And again, that mirrored my history, my experiences as a young child. But um, as I refined my research, I started to really investigate, I wanted to investigate the role that libraries played in either perpetuating or mitigating diversity and equities. And so um, one of the ways that I, I, I attempted to get to the heart of this question was by analyzing collection development policies to see um, how policies manifest messages of diversity. One of the things that I came across consistently when I was researching the lack of diversity in children's literature or the question as to why there aren't diverse books on library shelves or um, why youth don't have access to diverse books, um, 
it just a constant thread came up in the literature, the fact that there are these diversity and equities that are just prevalent in publishing. And subsequently, those publishing inequities created a challenge for libraries because if libraries didn't have librarians didn't have access to purchase books, then you know it would mirror on library shelves what was happening in the larger publishing world. But I think what really stuck with me was the fact that libraries were supposed to be places that embody the democratic idea. Right. So these are supposed to be spaces that support the idea of equity for all. But that was not happening. And there was so much literature talking about the need for diversity and so many librarians who had made significant contributions to library services and advancing conversations about equitable library services for um, for children and for all all patrons in general, that I felt like, you know, then why aren't we seeing more books on shelves, right? I learned that <laughs> through my research that diversity is articulated as a core value of librarianship. And so I was just curious to know, well, how do we as librarians, how do we address this issue of diversity? If we think back to 1960s, when Nancy Larrick published uh, an article in the Saturday Review titled The All-White World of Children's Literature, and that the data that she published uh, highlighted the alarming representation of African-Americans in children's literature. I think within the within the article, she talks about African-Americans being represented in children's literature at about approximately 6.8%. And then when I compared it to when I was doing my research, I think that number changed by 2%. So, and over the course of 40 years, right, diversity and equities, we hadn't done much to swing the pendulum more towards more diversity or more inclusivity. And so that was the whole basis of my book. Yeah, there's a, a lot of work to be done. Um, and so then in the first section of this book, you unpack a little bit more how libraries got to where we are today and why we need to be doing inclusive collection development. Why do we need to look closely at this history of libraries and what systems of racism and inequality are we going to find there that are being perpetuated? Uh, and then what what work does all of that history lay out for us? Uh, that is a really, really great question. It's a great and important question. Um, so let me say this. In writing my book, one of the things that I wanted to do was I didn't want to just contribute to the conversation, right? Because we know that these diversity and equities, it's a problem. And so for me, it became, so what are we going to do about it to stop it from continuing to be a problem that we as librarians, we only address it in conversation. I think it was Walt Disney that says, if you're constantly talking about a problem, then you're not doing anything about it. And so I wanted to approach this book and my research, um, what I've learned from my research from this mindset of how can we, what can I do to contribute to um, processes or practices that will ultimately bring about a change? So within the book, I talked about the history of libraries because for me, 
especially what's happening in today's socio-political climate, um, seeing a lot of things that's taking place today being represented in the history of libraries. Um, and so some of the things that I talk about include the fact that libraries in the South, uh, first of all, there were um, there was sort of this internal rift between librarians, right? So you have a profession, a field of librarianship, and in the after the uh, eighteen ninety six uh, passing of ruling of Plessy versus Ferguson, whereas segregation was deemed. Um, in so many words, the law on the land, you had librarians in the North that approached library services in one way and libraries in the South that approached librarianship in a completely different way. And to be more specifically, historically libraries in the South uh, did not welcome African-Americans. They were not allowed to use libraries, nor were they allowed, unless they could check out books in some instances, unless they could, unless uh, an African-American person can prove that they were trying to check out a library resources to be used by a white person. And so that was very interesting to me, especially given the climate today where you're seeing a lot of censorship that's taking place and you have groups and organizations being very strategic in their effort to target books that represent the voices of specifically African-Americans as well as the LGBTQIA plus communities. Um, and so we're seeing kind of, you know, some of the same things that we've seen in history, but what I think is most concerning to me that I think that we as librarians need to take note of is how we as libraries responded historically and think of use that as a as a sort of a stick, a measuring stick or something to think about critically so that we can uh, not only think about how we're responding to what's happening today uh, in light of how we have responded historically. And, and what I mean by that is that in segregation that was happening in the library in, in the field of libraries, um, went on for a significant period of time. It wasn't until the 30s that the American Library Association attempted to address social intolerance. So 1896 until the latter part of the 1930s where the American Library Association adopts the Library Bill of Rights. And the Library Bill of Rights were intended to make a stance on what was happening in the field of librarianship and to articulate this viewpoint that libraries should be a place that's for everyone. And again, as Andrew Carnegie states, that should represent the idea of a cradle of democracy. However, the, the response was one, a very slow response. And then two, the Bill of Rights were introduced as guidelines. So they did nothing to really impact the social climate of libraries during that time. It wouldn't be until years, a few decades later, when the civil rights gained momentum, that you started to see 
protests in libraries that actually began to make a difference in how African-Americans were treated in libraries and really began to address some of the social intolerance that was taking place in Nazi Germany, as well as in Austria with regards to book banning. And so I say all of this to say that I think historically, if we look at the missteps that we, and I do indeed think that one of the missteps that the libraries have possibly taken, um, library leaders have possibly taken in addressing social intolerance is this idea of waiting. Right? trying to take a neutral stance. And I don't think, I understand that there's a lot of conversation about libraries being neutral spaces. I absolutely disagree with that. I do not believe that libraries can be neutral spaces and at the same time support the liberation of groups that are being oppressed. Um, I think that we have to bring to the forefront those groups who are having their rights oppressed or stripped from them so that we can support their liberation or so that so that they can have equal footing in the world of librarianship, intellectual freedom, or the ability to speak out um, and to be heard and seen and visible in libraries should be for everyone. Um, so I think it's important because I think it can really help us understand how we should be addressing what's happening in today's society. And we should be vocal and we should be strategic and not just letting things play out in society. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, history teaches us, as you said, like not just how we got here, but also this you're reminding me of all of these different tactics that have been used and in so many parts of life there's a, a a tendency to to repeat tactics without looking back at how they have succeeded or not in the past and it's it's so clear looking at history that some of these things as you know like these protests really started to make a difference um and it's exciting to look at history and see what has worked well what what we might have forgotten to try in this moment Right. And you're, you're, you're so right. I think we have to learn, we have to use history as a learning tool for us. Um, Dr. Martin Luther King wrote a book, Why We Can't Wait. And I think when we're dealing with issues of social justice and those that support the idea of equity, we can't be slow. We can't wait to respond. We can't wait to try to impact change. We can't be reactive. We have to think about ways to be proactive. So looking at the history can force us to think about what can be the harm of not acting soon enough or not responding. So today you see library associations in the South pulling away from the American Library Association. And I'm thinking, wow, Texas is leaving the ALA. The um, Florida Library Association or Florida is pulling away from the ALA in Alabama. And so again, you see libraries in the South doing something that may be considered deviating from what has come to be normative and librarianship, which is supporting the idea of inclusivity. And I think that if we we're going to have unity and continuity across librarianship, we need to be um, thinking about our past and how you know we don't need to relive what has happened in the past. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so you've already brought up the Library Bill of Rights a little bit in our conversation, and you really dig into that in chapter two of your book. Could you talk a little bit more about the origins of that and how it could be used by libraries to advocate for the rights of marginalized communities? Uh, I'm curious if there's any examples you could share where we've seen it that way. 
Absolutely. So the Library Bill of Rights, uh, originally in 1930s when they were adopted, I believe the Library Bill of Rights were adopted in 1939. And the Library Bill of Rights attempts to articulate what uh, First Amendment rights look like within library settings. Um, and so the Bill of Rights originally in the 30s, they started off as three very broad proposition statements that say this is the position of libraries with regards to how libraries should treat our patrons and, and the, the uh, individuals in which we serve. And so that those three proposition statements have morphed into uh, now there are seven statements, I believe, with over 28 interpretations that try to make clear those proposition statements. So um, just in just sort of briefly, the Library Bill of Rights tend to articulate, and this is how I view it, what the, the core values and the professional obligations, and, and I'm going to kind of uh, emphasize that word, professional obligations of librarians. And so I think in the early 1900s and the 1930s, the Bill of Rights might have been looked at as something as optional. Librarians can choose to adhere to them or not because, again, they were passed or adopted in 1939 and libraries in the South still you know, there was still maltreatment of African-Americans in libraries in the South. So those proposition statements were not upheld as value statements or guidelines for professional practice in the South. Um, and it wouldn't be until later when the American Library Association held a conference and African-American librarians could not sit with their white counterparts that the American Library Association said, wait a minute, this is very problematic and we need to do something about this because the work that we're trying to accomplish, we can't be effective in promoting this idea of equity and equality when African-American librarians or librarians of color don't even have equality. So it was attempt, an attempt to unify libraries around this message of First Amendment rights for all people. And so one of the things that the Library Bill of Rights within the interpretation you'll find, there are specific interpretations that address that make clear that we have to, as librarians, we should have diverse collection development um, collections. And which is why I do a lot of work with policies because, you know, my question is that I throw out to the library community is how do we have diverse collections, right? Is this something that we do because you as a librarian may have had the training or maybe you're very passionate about making sure that there's diversity within your collections? How do we get to diverse collections? And so for me, the answer to that is we do it through policy. We can see today, you know, first of all, policy policy is supposed to guide practice. And what we're seeing today is that you have a lot of groups that are, again, targeting uh, books representative of diverse communities, trying to censor those books. They have gone beyond just the simple book challenges to actually trying to get uh, a lot of the, I feel, discriminatory ideas and ideologies legislated. So, you have groups that are trying to create policy to limit the visibility of BIPOC communities in libraries. So how do we as library librarians and in the field of librarianship, how do we, how do we counter that? We have to make equity 
a part of our policies, a part a part of our the guidelines that guide our practice. So this is how I get into the conversation of policy. And one of the things I talk about is that when you're writing, when I did my research, I looked at hundreds of policies. And what I would find in looking at policies is that you would have policies that were written 10 years ago, okay, um, that really don't reflect they're not, if you have a policy that's written 10 years ago, those policies cannot be responsive to the social and political climate of today. That's first and foremost. And then secondly, you would have policies that would have these very broad statements that we are a very diverse libraries, but those policies would not articulate anything else about diversity. How are you diverse? Who's represented in your collection? Who's not represented in your collection? How do you acquire diverse books? What's your commitment to diversity? And so they, these were very vague statements that I feel are benign statements that just really sound good on paper, especially if you have a policy that is 40 pages and you talk about diversity on page one, but page two through 40, do not mention diversity nowhere else. Right. So my question becomes, if we're not writing it into policy, how valuable is it and how do those policies guide our practice towards more inclusion? I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as as you noted with like the state of inequity in publishing, diverse collections will definitely not happen by accident. Um, and so uh, we need we need to do everything we can and policy is such a strong um, place to start. And so the heart of this book really is focused on collections and collection development policies. Um, and I'm interested in, I, I kind of saw a distinction in between what a collection policy can, a collection development policy can do on like a really basic functional level. And then what other benefits a policy might have for decentering whiteness in libraries that we might not immediately think of? Well, first of all, I think policies, they are, um, policies provide transparency, um, they allow us to be transparent to the broader community about our intentionality towards collecting inclusive books. We should not, that should not be a mystery. Um, again, diversity is articulated as a core value of librarianship. It's important for us to let the communities that we serve know that 
because diversity is core and because we uphold the idea of First Amendment rights for everyone, we are very intentional about our commitments to diversity because it's a part of our professional obligations as outlined within the Library Bill of Rights. So the first thing is the transparency part. We have to make clear to our communities why we collect diverse books and what does that mean, right? Um, it's just not by accident that you have diverse books on the collection shelves. No, we're trying to represent a myriad of experiences, people, backgrounds, ethnicities, and cultures in various sides, various sides of a topic, which is, again, what's articulated in the Library Bill of Rights. The second thing the policies do, policies also create continuity of service, right? So you have librarians that enter the field of librarianship with varying levels of experience. So if you have a librarian who has not had a lot of experience working with diverse communities or a lot of experience selecting books representative of diverse voices, then that librarian may not be well-versed on um, how to create inclusivity. They may not know where to go to select diverse books. They may not understand some of these conversations that are very important when we're talking about inclusivity, like authenticity on on own voices and also making sure that you don't you're not building these collections of books that perpetuate negative stereotypes and that do not really um, reflect the communities that we're trying to represent in a positive light or that don't reflect various communities across genres and so the policies create continuity because it serves as the collective consciousness of the organization where it says this is what the organization intends to do with regards to inclusivity and it puts everyone on a lane a level playing field in terms of this is how we are going to go about selecting diverse content. We're going to look at the representation. We're going to look at how these books support the psychosocial development of youth. We're going to look at whether or not these books have won awards. We're going to look at, right, you develop a set of best practices for selecting diverse books so that you won't have collections of books that really perpetuate inequities. Um, it's not enough just to have diverse books on the shelves, it's, it's important that we also think about how diversity is centered in the books. What are the messages that we're communicating to a larger audiences about the diverse communities that we're featuring? And so I think policies create that continuity of service as well to make sure that you have librarians, that they're saying the same thing about diversity and that they're doing the same thing with regards to diversity. Um, and I think also policies is an accountability piece. It can hold us as librarians accountable if we're truly using policies to guide our practice. It's a way that we can turn around and say, okay, did we actually build collections and sustain diverse collections um, the way we said that we are going to, that was articulated in our policies and especially in a climate where books are being targeted, books by marginalized communities or representative of marginalized communities are being uh, targeted, we have to make sure that we have a reconsideration process. And so having those policies that state, we intentionally collect books representative of diverse voices because, right, because of the First Amendment rights or because of the Library Bill of Rights. And in doing so, we're very thoughtful in this process and this is how we do it. And so now when you have that written on paper, you can use that to go back as a, as a way 
to measure your own practice or hold yourself accountable. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and so this, this book, as you mentioned, grew out of a lot of the research you'd been doing. And one of the things you developed in that research was a tool for collect for evaluating collection development policies, um, which you've called the JMOD. Could you explain what that is and how you created it and then share how it can help librarians evaluate and write collection development policies? Absolutely. So it developed out of my research. I was looking for a way to perform a content analysis on the collection development policies that I was looking at initially, again, when I was at Dominican working on um, my PhD. And so I wanted to know the extent, if at all, library collection development policies address diversity. What were the manifest? And if so, what were the manifest messages of diversity within those policies? And so, uh, again, I, I mentioned that I read so many different policies. So I wanted to create something that was very easy to use. And so it started off as an idea of a checklist, right? I wanted to read the policies and see what type of language and something else that I was looking to do. I was looking to see the level or the measure of con congruency between collection development policies and the Library Bill of Rights. So when I was developing these, this too, I looked closely at the Library Bill of Rights. I also looked at the literature to see what is the language that is being used uh, in the field of librarianship, when we're looking at the scholarship, when we're looking at the Library Bill of Rights, that's used to embody this idea of inclusion. And so I, from that, develop a list of um, phrases um, that I refer to as diversity units. And I said, okay, if I'm going to look at the manifest messages of diversity, um, then I'm going to look for these phrases. And so you see phrases on the JMOD, which is the Jameson Measure of Diversity, um, that, that would say, is the word diversity or a variation of the word listed within the policy? Is the word equity listed? Is the word inclusion? Um, so these were the constant words or phrases that's just very, that comes up naturally when we're having these conversations about diversity. And so I uh, try to be exhaustive in the list as possible. So there on the measure, you will see categories that say um, other phrases or words because I did begin to look at policies and I would come across specific languages that could also embody the idea of diversity. And so I use this tool to read the policy to, just to check off um, those words and phrases that did manifest. And again, I read policies that were, um, some policies that were hundreds of pages that took a while. And the number of phrases or words that embodied the idea of equity and inclusion, they were just not present. You may have a policy where only two phrases showed up, two out of 40 or 30 phrases would show up. And so I wanted to say, how can we change that? Because if a librarian, a new librarian specifically looked at this policy, how is this policy going to come going to communicate a commitment to diversity to that librarian? And so um my recommendations from was to first to say, okay, use this tool just to assess as a baseline how your policy, how a respective policy might communicate messages of diversity. 
The goal is to think about ways that you can increase diverse language to have stronger messages of inclusion. We need strong messages of inclusion in the field of librarianship to counter this, this dialogue about you know, censorship and not representing communities because of whatever reasons people feel that certain groups should not be represented. So the tool allows you to look at your policy and then your policy is either going to fall into several categories. You're either going to have policies that are high presence and low frequency. And presence means that you have a significant number of phrases that can embody diversity, but then low frequency means it speaks to the number of times that those phrases are repeated. And so from my research and, and from this tool, it has, it encourages librarians to think about two ideas, specificity and embeddedness. How specific are you being about diversity? And so I'll give you an example. I read policies that say we have a diverse collection. Well, the word diverse can mean many different things. What does diverse mean? Do you have diverse formats of books, right? Do you have diverse topics? In this climate diversity, if you're referring to people, it should be specific and you should contextualize diversity within your collection to let people understand what diversity means within your collection. And then embeddedness, um, there is a researcher by the name of Laura Numeroff who has written about content analyses. And one of the things that Laura states is that when you communicate messages, these, the important theme of the message is communicated by how many times something is repeated. So if I'm trying, if I'm having a conversation with you um, and I'm trying to really convey something that I think is very important, I'm going to probably say it over and over and over again to let you know that this is what I feel strongly about. So the idea is how much space does a certain idea take up in a message? And so embeddedness speaks to space. So again, if you have a policy where you have diversity that's mentioned, but diversity is not explained, you don't use other words to contextualize diversity, and it's not repeated anywhere in your policy, then it, it begs the question, well, how important is diversity? How clear is the message of diversity, which means how specific? And then how important is it when it's not being repeated. So the purpose of this tool is to get librarians to think about this. And this is just the first step. This is not the be all end all, which is why I said earlier, I wanted to do more than just talk about it. What can we do as a step to start working towards making sure that we codify diversity in our policies so that when we're having these challenges, we can say, oh no, we selected this book according to our commitment to diversity and according to our selection protocol calls when handling diverse books. Absolutely. And you do point out in chapter seven here that writing a policy is one thing, but it does need to be put into practice. So where would you recommend that folks start with implementing a, a policy and what other resources would you point them towards? Absolutely. Um, Again, I feel like collection development policies, that's the whole purpose of a policy is to 
uh, guide our professional practice. And if we're writing policies and we're not updating them, we're not revisiting, we're not having conversations about them, we're not talking to librarians about the policies to ensure that the policies represent the core values of our respective institutions, as well as the core policies of values of librarianship, then they're just wasted words, right? Which is what was written, which has been written and talked about in library scholarship. So putting it into practice essentially means just that, that you use, when you are a person that's involved in collection development, you are using that policy to make your selection decisions. One of the things I tell the, the, the librarians, the pre-service librarians that I'm working with, because of censorship, you're probably going to be called out to some degree to, to defend a book that you have selected. And you need to be able to say, these are the reasons why I selected this these books. And that should be according to whatever those principles or those steps that have been enumerated in the policy should be. And so librarians should, again, be more specific. And when they're writing their policies, they should say, in their within their policies, and I give examples of library policies. I think Illinois State University, I am biased, <laughs> does a great job of, of, of writing a sample policy or of having a collection development policy because it represents the work of several librarians, not just my ideas, but of some really talented librarians who are committed to diversity. But it should say, where do I go if I don't know where to go to get diverse books? Where should I go? I should look at the Coretta Scott King Book Awards. I should be looking at the Pira Bell Prey. Now, mind you, I say this um, with, the, with the following disclaimer. Those awards, diverse book awards, only publish, only um, allocate awards to so many books a year. So if you're trying to meet uh, your diversity um, trying to increase diversity in your libraries, you cannot do that by just looking at awards. You have to go to other sites as well. Support diverse publishers. And writing this into your policy gives that newer librarian the resources that they need to be competent in seeking out books that are representative of diverse communities. So other resources, Lee and Low Books, right? They are independent publisher that specializes in diverse content. Um, also Diverse Book Finder. Diverse Book Finder has a collection analysis tool that allows librarians to not only um, analyze the diversity that, that within their collection in a way that just doesn't focus on whether or not you have diverse characters, but it actually allows you to see how diverse characters are centered within books so that you can fill in any gaps in your collection. Maybe you have a lot of books in your collection that show African-Americans, but only um, in the light of slavery or in oppressive stories. Um, and then you have organizations like We Need Diverse Books that provides resources and Brown Bookshelf. So there are a myriad of resources that you can defer to, but I think that it is helpful to have those resources, to think about where you can go and to have those resources incorporated in your policies so that all librarians are doing the same thing when it comes to selecting books. And that all librarians are also looking at evaluating those books by a certain type of measure that again represents the collective consciousness um, of an organization. And then again, revisiting those policies annually, right? Evaluating the collection and seeing how diversity is increasing in the collection, right? And going back to the table 
every two years or every year as often as needed to update those policies and to have conversations is really important so that the policies don't become something that looks good um, on your library website, but it really doesn't have a lot of meaning within the practice. Absolutely. Um, well, I've taken a lot of your time, but before we wrap up, I I would just love to know if there's anything else you'd like to share about this book that I didn't think to ask about, or um, if you'd like to share anything about projects you're focusing on now that have emerged from this book. Yes. So I have been asked by actually several publishers to have more conversation about uh, the Library Bill of Rights, using the Library Bill of Bill of Rights uh, to really support the idea of equity for all, particularly in this climate that's really pushing back, that's really creating a challenge for librarians with regards to uh, our efforts in inclusivity. Something about this book is that this book is part of the Beta Phi Mu Scholar series. So I was very um, I was very honored when they did approach me based off of my research to write for the scholar series. Um, but again, I think if a person reads this book and uses this book, again, I, I wrote it in a way, I wrote it from the standpoint, I didn't write it from the standpoint of I'm a scholar, <laughs> right? I wrote it from a practitioner's standpoint. And as I was writing this book, I was trying to write it using language um, that I felt was easy, that was accessible language, as if I was talking to my students who maybe didn't know anything about librarianship because I wanted it to be clear. I wanted it to be something that I found that when you have, when you're working on diversity initiatives and when you're working on any type of project, if something is really complex, right, it don't really increase the longevity of the project because people burn out or people may not be committed. So I wanted to do something that was really transparent and easy as a first step that someone can look at and says, okay, this makes sense. I'm hoping that people can say, you can modify this, you can add this and you can do this because I want it to spark the conversation. I don't want it to be the be all end all for remedy, remedying diversity issues in libraries. Um, so that's what I want you to know about the book. And in terms of my projects, my future projects, I'm very vocal and adamant about making sure that as librarians, uh, one of the things I will say is that uh, diversity is not an option, right? Um, people who are in society, a lot of the communities that we represent those communities may not have access to resources and they don't get to choose maybe the lives that have been afforded to them, whether they're growing up in, in communities where there's lack of resources, maybe they've grown up in a, um, a culture that has been oppressed, right? I didn't choose to be an African-American female, right? This is who I am. This is the life that I have been chosen or slated to live. And so because of that, I don't think as librarians, we should choose to be committed to equity for all communities. Our communities are supporting on us to make sure that we provide those windows, mirrors, and slide, sliding glass, glass doors because everyone benefits right? It benefits 
because it contributes to a more humane society and it makes the idea of diversity something that's normative. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for speaking with me. Um, once again, I've been speaking with Andrea Jamison, author of Decentering Whiteness in Libraries, a framework for inclusive collection management practices. My name is Jen Hoyer, and you've been listening to New Books Network. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.